Lukutei Sicha is Chelek Yudzayin, Parshas Achrei, Sicha Beis. We're learning the Ilunishmas Rabbi Yisuf Ben Yamin Ben Rav Menashe Kaltman. The last portion of the Tractate of Yema, which discusses the halachas of Tvila on Yom Kippur, concludes with the following. It's taught in the school of Rabbi Yishmol. Tana Devei Rabbi Yishmol. Haraya Keri B'yom HaKippurim Yidag Kol Hashana Kula. One who sees an omission of semen on Yom Kippur should worry for that entire year that perhaps this was a sign that he and his repentance were refused. V'im also Shana, but if he survives the year well, Muftachaloi Shehu Ben Ha'olam Haba, he can be reassured and trust that his good deeds protected him from and ensured for him a share in Olam Haba in the world to come. Amar Rabbi Nachman Bar Yitzchak, Rabbi Nachman Bar Yitzchak said, Teda, shekol ha'olam kulay ro'ev v'husevea, Know that it is so, for the whole world is hungry, for refrain from conjugal relations, and he is satisfied because with the omission his lust was calmed. The issue of semen occurred, but it was not intentional, and he has merited and been shown divine compassion. Ki'isa Ravidimi, when Ravidimi came from Eretz Yisrael to Bavel, Omar, he said, Seeing an omission on Yom Kippur is a symbol that one will live long, grow, and raise others. It would seem right to say that these statements and content come as a continuation to the earlier discussion regarding one who sees a seminal omission on Yom Kippur and the halacha that he should immerse himself. The question here, however, is how a chapter on Yom Kippur, which is about repentance and atonement, and which is followed by content in the following discussion in Gemara, also about Tshuva, concludes with something quite different to repentance and atonement. In fact, with one of the severest of sins, when it is intentional, as witnessed in the repentance for this sin. And we can extrapolate from the atonement required regarding the severity of the sin, even when there is no intention, and it is b'shoigig. And though the Gemara states that if he survives the year and is thus assured that his good deeds protected him, and he is assured a share in the world to come, and it was unintentional, as Rabbi Nachman teaches, and according to Rav Dimi, he will live long and grow and raise others. This is all after the situation occurred. It's the follow-up, after Yom Kippur. And the good is then revealed. But on Yom Kippur itself, there is no positive here. It's something that negates God's will. What's also puzzling is the very essence of this whole thing. How can something so good, the assurance of a place in the world to come, the assurance of long life, result from a double negative. He sees an omission, and it's on the holy day of Yom Kippur. Rashi's explanation that when a year passed and he hasn't died, he can be assured that, he has good, that his good deeds protected him, or that he has good deeds that protected him, is only an explanation that there was something else that saved him from the punishment of a severe sin. But the words Haroya Keri, one who sees an omission on Yom Kippur, should worry, 
but if the year passed, it's a sign that he is assured a place in the world to come, are brought to show connection between these two ideas, seeing in a mission on Yom Kippur and being assured of his place in Elam Haba. How does this transpire? How is there this great advantage of being assured life in the world to come and that it will live long, bear, and raise others? Similarly, it's even more perplexing when we look at the experience of tshuva me'ahava, repentance from love, regarding which the Talmud in Yuma teaches that intentional sins are transformed into merits as a result of tshuva me'ahava. The Chodesh Agodis questions this saying that is just really surprising because ultimately it's like a sinner being rewarded. He then continues and responds to this, explaining that when a sinner does tshuva from ava, from love, he sanctifies himself to serve God with love and desire, driven by a strong longing to cleave to God, thus achieving a new existence of divine attachment. His tshuva is then pure and complete. He increases in good deeds beyond what are called for in order to repent for his sin and all his good actions become increased merits. This reasoning is unclear, however, because the terminology in the Gemara is that's his intentional sins become merits, not he performs so many good deeds and those become merits. So we're left with the question, since when do we reward a sinner? And though it seems we really can say that Zdoinais Nasu like Kizachis means just that, that one's increase in good deeds is the result of his transforming himself through Shiva for the very sins that he did, hence his sins become merits when he does Shiva from love, sort of like a star, a legal document in Jewish law, which is valid on its own, but when disputed becomes more potent yet after the base din's confirmation of its validity, more potent than an undisputed document, which means that the dispute causes the document to become stronger. The difference here, though, and what makes this situation insufficient as reason for our discussion is that it's the document that becomes stronger in the case of a star. We don't say that it's the person who sinned that becomes stronger after the sin. We're saying it's the sin that transforms and becomes merits. An explanation can be found in the completion of the Tractate of Yuma, which states that Rabbi Akiva said, Omar Rabbi Akiva, Ashrechem Yisrael, how fortunate are you, Israel? Before whom are you purified, and who purifies you? Avichem Shabashamayim, it's your Father in heaven, Shenemar. As the verses state in Yecheskel, in chapter 36, Paraklamid Vav, first 25, Pasuk Chofei, V'zorakti aleichem mayim tohirim hartem, and I will sprinkle purifying waters upon you, says God, and you will be purified. And, as the verse says in Yermiyahu, another reference to purifying waters, Mikve Yisrael Hashem, God is the ritual purifying bath of Israel. As a ritual bath purifies the impure, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu purifies his nation Israel. Rabbi Akiva is actually saying two things. One, 
He tells us before whom we are purified and also who purifies us. In answer, he brings two verses. One, I have sprinkled you with purifying waters. The second, God is a Jew's mikvah, which the Rokhajavar explains to mean that in these two verses, the two types of purification are defined. Purification by way of hazah, sprinkling, and mikvah, immersing. One must have intentional thoughts of purification with hazah, with sprinkling, not so with purification through mikvah, as a mikvah purifies even without intention of purification. Therein lies the difference in the two verses Rabbi Akiva quotes. Though both speak of God purifying, the first verse is about God sprinkling us with pure water. The second verse does not speak of an action of God purifying, it just states the fact of purity, because mikvah is a purity that requires no consciousness of purification. Just as there are two ways to purify, for God to purify, as per our discussion, there are these two ways for repentance and the service of purification on the part of men. These two ways are tshuva meyira, which means that there is suffering involved. It's tshuva from fear, when one is forced for fear of punishment for deeds done. And that motivates the tshuva. And there is tshuva from ahava, tshuva from love. Tshuva from ahava is about one's true desire to return to God and to repair the relationship by repairing what he has done. Each type of tshuva has a different effect. As the Gemara explains, tshuva from fear results results in, as the Navi Hesheya prophesizes, erpa mishuvasam, I will heal their waywardness, which Rashi explains to mean as a blemished or wounded person who heals and remains with a scar. But the effect from, of tshuva from love is an uprooting of the sin, which serves retroactively to be as though no sin was ever done. The impact is relevant in halacha as well. If one marries a woman on the condition that she has no sins, if she ultimately had sinned and had done tshuva from a point of fear, their marriage is not valid because her sin was not retroactively eradicated and uprooted. Whereas, if her repentance for the sin was from love, the marriage is valid because her sins were extirpated earlier via the retroactive impact of this tshuva, of tshuva me'ava. Thus, at the time of kiddushin, of sanctification of the marriage, she indeed had no sins. The Gemara similarly differentiates between one who marries a woman with a blemish and one who marries a woman who has no vows. If she expunged her vows with a rov, then her marriage remains valid. But for a woman who had a blemish and went to a doctor after the wedding and she is healed, her marriage is not valid because an impact of the blemish remains. Now, while this is a key difference in shuva from ava, love, 
and tshuva from yira, fear, where in the former the sin is uprooted and it is as though there was no sin, this is not quite the apex of tshuva from love. The true fulfillment of tshuva from love is when one's sins become actual merits. Zdeines nasesloi kezachies. His sins become like merits. Within love itself, there are several tears. Generally, these are comprised of the three, Becholavavcha, with all of one's heart, love with all one's heart, Bechol nafshecha, love with all of one's soul, and Bechol ma'idcha, love with all of one's might. These manifest in different tiers of tshuva. Considering that, as mentioned earlier, a quality of repentance from love is that it is with in, intention of truly seeking one's relationship with God, the ultimate experience of this loftier outcome of tshuva when sins be, are, is when sins become merits, and the lesser experience of sins becoming uprooted is almost an insignificant experience of tshuva when one might even say that at this level there isn't real intention. Our sages in fact teach that love with only the two components of bechol with all one's heart and bechol nafshecha with all one's soul, but missing the bechol ma'idcha, all one's might, deems one not truly fulfilling God's will. This is like the Raghachavar's explanation that to simply remove sin, one doesn't actually need intention. Intention is in one's truest desire to repair one's sin. An idea that supports this thought that in tshuva from ahava, from love, there are varying levels, is seen in a clear halachic determination in the tractate of Kiddushin. The halacha states that if one marries a woman on the assumption, condition, that he is a tzaddik, truly righteous, even if it turns out that he is the complete opposite and a complete rasha, the marriage is valid, for he may have had a tshuva thought at the time of Kiddushin. Challenging this law is the idea that if he did tshuva, it was from fear, and the sin was then not eradicated, and he is not a tzaddik, and is left with a blemish of sin. Even if it was a tshuva from love, the marriage should be invalid, because he is then in fact a baal tshuva, which is higher than the level of tzaddik, for as our ch- sages teach, b'mokayim shabali tshuva aimdim, in the place where Baal Tshuva stand, a complete tzaddik cannot stand. So his qualifications were in fact false, even if he was trying to minimize his attributes and actually gave better goods than claimed, this would invalidate his kiddushin. How then, indeed, does halacha deem that because one had shiva thoughts at the time of being Makadish a wife, his marriage is valid. There are different levels of chuva from love, and to the degree of the chuva eradicating his sins, he repented. It wasn't chuva to the point of his sins becoming merits, the ultimate in chuva from love. That highest level of chuva is when we say that in the place of Bali Chuva, 
even complete tzaddikim cannot stand. In addition, more so even, when we're addressing the idea of a possibility of a real and true tshuva moment, it's not likely that in that momentary experience, the highest level and state of repentance was reached. In other words, so his sins do not become merits and take him to the level of bal tshuva beyond tzaddik. To expand our understanding of this, that b'makim shabalei tshuva aimdim, Sadikim gemurim enam yechelim lamid in the place where balei tshuva stand, complete sadikim cannot stand. That this tshuva isn't about how much tshuva one does. In other words, we don't calculate that the bal tshuva had the quantity of mitzvahs or this quantity of mitzvahs, and now he has so many more merits. Rather, it's about quality. It's the quality of the merits that come about through repentance for his sins. Hence, a tzaddik cannot stand in the place of a balchava because the tzaddik doesn't experience this quality of merits. This particular quality is about complete shuva from love, causing repair of sin in a way that sin transforms to merit. An understanding of the wholeness of one's shuva from ahava and its intention and the result of the transformation of the sin to merit is explained by the Alter Rebbe in Tanya in chapter 7, Perak Zion, when in speaking about forbidden foods, the Alter Rebbe teaches that forbidden foods are locked into that state of impurity forever until one does such great tshuva that his sins become actual merits. In other words, his shuva is from deep love, with true and deep desire to cleave to God, and he thirsts for this connection like a parched earth thirsts for water, and he feels like his soul until now is in a parched state, distant as possible one, as one could possibly be from God. And so his pining and thirst is beyond that of a tzaddik. And it's this kind of thirsting and pining and love of God that transforms sins to merits and upon which our sages say, in the place where Bali Tshuva stand, a complete tzaddik cannot stand. The Altareb explains two ideas in his teachings here. The transformation of the individual whose, sin, whose sins cause him to be in such a state of yearning and his soul in such a state of thirst for God beyond what the greatest tzaddik can ever experience and the transformation of his sins into merits as a result of this deep love of God. There's a halachic explanation to these two when one prepares for a mitzvah. There are different tiers of significance the halacha applies to these preparations. For example, in preparing a tool to be used for a mitzvah, without which the mitzvah cannot be performed, like in the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, who says that to prepare for a bris on Shabbos, one can chop wood, heat it, in order to prepare, to fashion and prepare an iron blade for Mila. His opinion is most preparations for a mitzvah can be done on Shabbos 
and override Shabbos. These preparations, in this case tools, in other words, are part of the mitzvah itself. A higher tier yet is found in the Talmud Yerushalmi in the Tractate of Brachas, which teaches that when preparing to build a sukkah for oneself, one makes a blessing. The same for binding the lulav. One makes a blessing. Baruch ato Hashem Eloikeinu Melech Eilam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvais of Itzivanu Lasais Lulav. So too, the Yerushalmi is of the opinion with the writing of a mezuzah when one writes tefillin and with preparing tzitzis that preparing for the mitzvah requires a blessing. And the reason for this is because the actual commandment is to sit in the sukkah. To do that, you have to build a sukkah first. Hence, the preparation, according to this, this Gemara, must be part of the commandment. And this action becomes significant as part of the mitzvah and is then, according to the opinion in the Yerushalmi, actually a mitzvah. One can make a blessing on the preparation then. A higher tier yet, though, is the process of preparation we found in the Beis HaMikdash, particularly in the preparation of taking and sprinkling the blood from the animal, which is sacrificed, on the altar. Even though walking the blood to the altar is only for the purpose of the step in the service of sprinkling the blood, the law is that this walk has the importance of the service itself, to the extent that a misplaced thought on the part of the Kayan at that moment of carrying the blood can invalidate the sprinkling. Speaking more generally, there are different situations in the temple services when a preparatory service will have the status of a temple service. It may be unfinished, it's not a full temple service because there are yet more steps to this being a completed service. But in these cases, this may be considered a service. And in these situations, if a non kayan one who does not have the priesthood as a birthright, performs these services, it's not a problem because it isn't in fact a complete service and he would not be then deserving of death. This can be extrapolated for our discussion, as one can only reach this highest tier of tshuva from love through the sins he committed, which in tshuva also raise up his merits. The sins now too become merits, like those preparations for mitzvah, which become as part of the mitzvah. But this is an insufficient answer because the preparations don't become mitzvahs themselves. Even according to Rabbi Eliezer, they remain as preparations for the mitzvahs. Even according to the teaching in the Talmud Yerushalmi, that a blessing should be made when a sukkah is being built or a lulav prepared, one is still not completing the fulfillment of the mitzvah to dwell in a sukkah. It only completes the action of making a sukkah, like bringing the blood to be sprinkled on the altar isn't a complete service. Most significant is a core difference. 
Preparations for a mitzvah are actions taken for the facilitation of something connected to the action. But in our discussion, the sins that become merits are not facilitators of mitzvahs. They are the opposite of that. And that's really hard to understand. Some preparations for temple services don't have the status of a mitzvah, not even the status of preparation for a mitzvah. An example would be the mitzvah of tithing and removing a tenth of one's produce. The preparatory steps for these mitzvahs are plowing and harvesting, gathering in one's grain, but the steps of plowing and harvesting are in no way considered a mitzvah. Maybe we can suggest that this is the case because the opinion of Shimon Bar Yochai is that these actions are not good actions because these tasks take a person away from Torah. So if these actions are possibly undesirable, how can sins which are beyond undesirable, which are actually wrong and prohibited, be considered a preparation for the act of tshuva? We can understand this with a brief explanation. Each mitzvah has a general reality. All mitzvahs are equal. Each mitzvah is the fulfillment of Hashem's will, as each sin is a transgression of Hashem's will. Then, each mitzvah has a uniqueness, something that makes it specific, like the mitzvah of bris milah, circumcision, or the experience of sitting in the sukkah. Those are the specifications of the mitzvah. Within the specific aspect of mitzvahs, though an item or tool is used for the mitzvah, like the knife to perform circumcision, making that knife isn't part of the commandment or the positive action of doing a bris, of cutting the foreskin, building the structure of the sukkah and preparing the lulav, not the mitzvah, bringing the blood, not the mitzvah. The point of tshuva, though, as explained by the Rambam, by Maimonides, is a mitzvah that is not about its specifics. Tshuva, says the Rambam, is about leaving sin, eradicating thoughts of sin, and making a clear determination to never do this sin again. One abandons the path of sin. Tshuva is a fierce and fundamental decision in one's heart to leave sin. This, then, is the mitzvah of tshuva. Once someone arouses within themselves this fierce thirst for God because of sin, those sins become like merits. But only when the fierce thirst exists and this great tshuva is done for these averas, and then do these averas become like merits as part of his repentance. Hence the wording, kizochiyais, like merits. When this kind of tshuva doesn't exist, the sins are only dug up and eradicated. Examples for a similar situation where there is preparation for a mitzvah that becomes part of the mitzvah, would be, first of all, chinuch, education. There were sacrifices brought to inaugurate the Mishkan as a tabernacle to God, which became an actual part, ultimately, of the temple service. 
And the education of one's children is a mitzvah, even though it's really preparation for this child who will one day be obligated to study Torah himself. There are also mitzvahs performed in exile, as the Safri explains, that though Hashem placed us in exile, He tells us to be outstanding in mitzvah performance so that when we are redeemed and return to our land, the mitzvahs will be familiar and not foreign to us. Similarly, the idea of sin becoming like mitzvahs in the future exists in mitzvahs themselves. The goats sent into the wilderness on Yom Kippur, the red heifer, and the egla arufa are examples of animals sent away specifically as atonement for our sins. These are considered as any other sacrifice. And albeit this is performed outside the temple and not within, in the holy space, these are considered mitzvahs. Their effectiveness is in fact more potent. There is also the example of the calf of Eliyahu that was burned as a sacrifice on Har Carmel as a moment called for this sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice to God and considered a mitzvah. Our rabbis teach, in fact, that it is from the forest that the handle for the axe that will take down a tree is made. This all fits in with the idea that is a fundamental ethic in Torah, that saving one's life, a life, comes before any other mitzvah, except for those that deny life, like the three mitzvahs for which one must have self-sacrifice rather than transgress these sins. Accordingly, the end of the tractate can be understood. If one experiences a seminal omission on Yom Kippur, he should worry about the year ahead, that this is a sign that his fast and repentance were not accepted. Yet if he survives, it's a sign of life in, this, in the world to come and of blessing. The words he should worry are different to the more usual, this is a bad sign for him. He should worry tells us he should be involved in the act of tshuva all year. Because as Rashi says, maybe the message is that his repentance on Yom Kippur wasn't accepted. And whatever he can be given, he has received. And his tshuva is being turned away. This worry should motivate an even loftier expression of repentance. Explained, this means with an unintentional seminal omission on Yom Kippur, a time when we afflict the body with fasting, etc., and repent for sin, avoiding thoughts of sin, the omission was providential, not an act of the evil inclination. And so by divine providence, there is this impetus for greater tshuva. Tshuva that the service of a righteous person, of a tzaddik, would not bring one to. When this tshuva is complete with a year quote-unquote, of concern, his spiritual service is uplifted, and he is uplifted physically with long life, longer than what was previously determined according to his soul root and divine service. 
Now we can go back to the question we asked earlier. Why does the tractate about Yom Kippur conclude with a teaching about a severe sin? And how does it follow on to what was taught and precede the continuing discussion? Rabbi Kiva teaches of two types of purification. Hashem sprinkles and Hashem is a mikvah, an immersive experience. Sprinkling is about intention. Immersion is not. This is followed by the Gemara teaching, the difference of the two types of tshuva, tshuva me'ava from love and tshuva me'ira from fear. Tshuva from love is about intention. Tshuva from fear lacks the true intention. In tshuva me'ava, we said there is uprooting the sin, which acts retroactively and determines one at tzaddik. But it is tshuva without complete intention at that level and is like the experience of immersing in a mikvah. A higher tier of tshuva from love transforms his sins to merits. For this level of repentance, there must be complete and true intention like the sprinkling that God sprinkles that the Navi talks about. The Gemara then speaks of the promise that one can be assured of of a share in the world to come, if the year passed. This is not a reward of something new. His sins are uprooted and he's considered a tzaddik. In fact, kulam tzaddikim, all your nation are tzaddikim, and all your nation have a share in the world to come. He did tshuva over a year, and his tshuva then was with intention, but not perfect intention. The words that tell us he will live long years, he will increase and bring children into this world and grow, tells us that his emission was not a punishment, but rather it was given as an opportunity for complete intentional tshuva. This then expounds the understanding of the unintentional seminal emission on Yom Kippur and its providential orchestration, and that one's worry all year, the complete intention in his tshuva resulting from the emission transforms his sins to merits. Then there is also the physical reward of long life, children and grandchildren who involve themselves in God's Torah and mitzvahs.